0: I'm going to invite you to come on in and grab your seats. We're going to get started here with our Sunday school lesson. We're continuing our tour through the Bible and our study through the New Testament. So I'm going to uh, pray for us, and then we're going to dive into our study of an overview of the first letter to the Corinthian church. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we recognize that we need your help this morning to understand your words. We are amazed that you have, in your love and mercy and grace, revealed yourself to us. And so we ask for your grace to help us, that your spirit would empower us to receive your word as written, that we would be your humble servants that delight to rejoice in all that you've shown and revealed and declared to be true about yourself. And that it would have a transforming impact on our hearts, our minds, and our lives. We love you, Lord, and we pray that you would edify and build up your church through the gospel this morning. Praise in Jesus' name, amen. One of the great things about Scripture and the way that God has inspired it is that it really is intensely personal. And we've seen throughout the Old Testament and even into the New Testament all these narratives, all these stories depicting what it is that God has been doing throughout redemptive history. And these recent books that we've studied in the New Testament have really been establishing the church. And we see that in Acts. We see what it is that God's bringing about in this new revelation of the gospel and who Christ is and what he's done in salvation and how that is continuing to impact and transform the world And in Acts, we saw the establishment of the church, and in Romans, we see the doctrine of the church. But as we come to 1 Corinthians, we really see the implications of these truths in the church. And this morning, as we uh, jump into this letter of 1 Corinthians, we really want to understand the background, the setting... Uh, We'll look at an outline, but then we're going to really take our time to understand what it is that Paul's addressing and how he's addressing the church at Corinth. What is it that they needed to know, and why is it they weren't getting it right? But to understand, we really need to understand what it is that is going on in the context, the background we would call the setting of this book. There's an author, an audience, there's a date when it was written, and getting this historical background really helps us. And if your Bibles are open to 1 Corinthians uh, the Bible actually tells us who the author is. That's super helpful. In the first verse, we see of uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, the author writes, St. Paul, called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus and our brother Sosthenes, to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. We see that this letter is written by the Apostle Paul to the church at Corinth. And this map here kind of shows us an, uh, a big view picture of the Mediterranean Sea. We see, um, if you look on the right side, you'll see Israel and the area over there. And Paul was on his missionary journeys going through what's now modern-day Turkey and then up towards uh, Philippi and down through Thessalonica. And on his journey down, he planted a church at Corinth. And if we zoom in here a little bit, we'll be able to see really the Aegean Sea area. And in um, the book of Acts, we actually see that Paul actually was writing this letter from the church at Ephesus. So he was on his second missionary journey now, and he was at Ephesus. He stayed there for over two years, uh, but he heard of some issues going on in the church at Corinth, which is across the Aegean Sea. And thankfully, there's lots of trade routes, and so we see a lot of communication between these churches because there would have been frequent trips of um, either tradesmen or or other uh, items being traded between cities, and they would be traveling uh, back and forth between um, what's now modern-day Turkey and Greece. And so they were able to exchange letters back and forth about what was going on. And uh, what we find is that uh, Paul likely wrote this around 55 AD based on um, textual information in the letter, And this was um, on his actual, sorry, third missionary journey, um, according to Acts uh, 19, where he was writing to the church at Corinth, which is in southern Greece. Now, to understand a little bit about Corinth, um, if we zoom in, this was um, really a port city. Um, Corinth was this diverse and large city um, in the first century, and it's in um, this bottom part of Greece. The population there at the time was over... Uh, 500,000 people in the first century, yet today it lies in ruins. Much of the reason for this large city was that it was a common trade route um, in the first century. If you see there, it's kind of a a choke point for any land travel from the north to the south. So any trading going on had to go through Corinth. And then from east to west, um, to go from the Aegean Sea across towards Rome, this was a lot safer than going around the southern part of Greece. And so oftentimes ships would come into the port and they would be dragged across the land to be able to go to the Gulf of Corinth and then sail out towards Rome. It was, even though it was, had some expenses, it was much safer uh, for tradesmen traveling from the east to the west or vice versa. So it was a major trade city um, throughout the Mediterranean. And the uh, common known uh, Olympian Games were further to the west in uh, Olympus, but Corinthian, uh, culture really developed these Ismithian Games, which are the second most famous athletic events in history. And people would traffic there, and they would see these competitions and make wagers. It was a high-traffic community, similar to what we would know as sort of the Las Vegas of first century. Corinthian. Um, to Corinthianize something was um, synonymous with debauchery and moral depravity, it was not a moral city, and Corinth even had this Ancropolis, which was a, a high city, a high place, that was for defense and pagan worship. And historically, we know there was this temple to Aphrodite, which was the Greek goddess of love, and there was over a thousand priestesses that would come down in the evening and offer their prostitution services to the men in the city. So debauchery was what this city was known for, yet Paul was called by God to this city and that he said, there are those here that are his elect, that belong to him. And so Paul went in his first missionary journey and was traveling to Corinth and he labored there for over a year and a half. And what we find is this is one of the letters of communication to try to help this city disentangle itself from the worldliness in which it grew up, in which it knew. And that was the big issue at Corinth, was worldliness, And what we find as we study through 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians is that there's other letters that are referenced. So to help you kind of get some of the context, based on the information in both 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians, there seem to be four letters that were actually written back and forth. In 1 Corinthians, there's a letter that was referred to earlier. So 1 Corinthians actually seems to be the second letter written to this church And then in 2 Corinthians, there's a letter referred to as the severe letter, where where there was a harsh tone that was taken with some of the issues going on. And then there's 2 Corinthians. So there's really four letters. 1 Corinthians you can think of as the second letter, and 2 Corinthians is really like the fourth letter. But what we have preserved by God that's inspired for us to know and learn and be benefited from as the church is 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians, Now, for us to really get a big picture overview of what Paul is doing in this letter is he's writing to address several issues. We find here in the letter a a opening greeting and salutations or a conclusion at the end. But the structure of the book that really helps us as readers of God's word to understand it is that it breaks down really into two sections. There's reported issues and there's requested issues. And the letter really articulates this well for us, this idea of reports that were come from, uh, had come from Corinth to Paul when he was at Ephesus come from uh, the household of Chloe, from Apollos who was another preacher and teacher, and at the end of the letter he mentions three Corinthian church members who brought him a gift as well. So it seems like there are reported issues from church members and others who were involved at Corinth that Paul heard about, and he addresses those in the first six chapters. And then what he switched to in chapter 7 is these requested issues. He got a letter from the church at Corinth saying, hey, Paul, how do we address these issues? This is what's going on in our church, and he communicates this with a key word now. So as you're studying through in the second half of the letter, look for the word now. He says, now regarding the issue of this, or now how you wrote to me about this. And it really helps us to say, okay, Paul is now talking about this issue, then this issue, this and this issue. And this communication that's happening between the church and the Apostle Paul. So Paul is uh, aiming to correct both reported issues and requested topics and answer these questions to this uh, new budding church in Corinth amidst all the worldliness and paganism. And he's really trying to shepherd via snail mail. And Paul treated this church as genuine believers, as we saw in the opening letter. These are saints according to and with the whole body of Christ universally. And they need some help understanding how it is they ought to live. How it is they ought to live according to the gospel which they have believed and received. And Paul is aiming to show them this repeated truth that wrong living always stems from wrong believing. He wants to show them the truth of the gospel and show them how it applies to all these issues that are going on so that they're not overwhelmed with, well, we have this problem and this problem and this problem, and we need all this expertise. He's he's saying it all roots back to the gospel truth. If we know who Christ is and what Christ has done, it transforms all of life. And to list out some of the problems that this church was dealing with, that Paul addresses in this letter, is there was lots of division. There was lots of division and strife and quarreling amongst the church members. There was immorality amongst the church. They had questions that they raised about marriage. Should they be married? Should they not be married? What happens in different situations where you're, uh, you're married to someone, but they're not a believer? Also, there's questions about Christian liberty, our rights that we have in the gospel. How should we think about and live according to these liberties that we have in the gospel? They had issues about the corporate gathered church. How should we operate? How should we engage with one another? What should it look like for us to participate in the Lord's Supper? They also had questions about the resurrection with false teaching going around. Did Christ really raise from the dead? Do our bodies really matter? Will we actually be raised in the future? And they also had questions regarding giving. What does it look like for us to handle our funds, our money that the Lord provides? What should we do with that? So we have these lists of problems, and what Paul does in this letter that's important for us to get is that he really holds up this sort of uh, prism of the gospel. He holds up this, this gem, this good news of the gospel, and what he shows them early on is that these truths of the gospel are spiritually discerned. We need the Holy Spirit to illuminate the truth of the gospel as it applies to every area of life. And what we find is that the gospel is meant to inform each of these topics... And so it's important as we study through to not not miss the big picture of what Paul's doing in addressing each individual topic. Because we too can be overwhelmed with saying, there's so many issues in life. How do I handle relationships there? Or how do I deal with um, strife at work? Or, Or all these areas. And what we need to recognize is that it's got a fixed central point. And what we need to go back to is the truth of the gospel because that informs each of these issues and helps us to also live according to the gospel. So Paul has this this view of the gospel that is not just historical truth, but it is meant to continually transform the way the church is living today. And so that's what we're going to seek to do. We're going to seek to look at what are some of the main themes that Paul brings up in this letter to the Corinthian church that really highlight this gospel-centered living of the church. Because that, too, is for us today as a church. We, too, are to live this gospel-centered life. So question is, how, how does this gospel impact the life of a believer and the life of the church I think Paul repeatedly in this letter points out three primary characteristics that are rooted in the gospel. And so I want you to listen carefully uh, for these characteristics as we kind of glance through this book and uh, look at these reported and requested issues that Paul seeks to address within the church. So I hope your Bibles are open. We're going to go through um, really quickly a lot of the letter here to, uh, in 1 Corinthians. So first, the reported problems. Uh, which address the issues um, really in chapters 1 through 6. In chapters 1 through 6. And the first one uh, that comes up is this idea of divisions. Paul uh, hears from members of the household of Chloe that there's this problem about um, being quarrelsome within the church, amongst brothers even. He says in 1 Corinthians, starting in verse 10, he says, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree And that there be no division among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. But what I mean is that each of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. And then he addresses with these rhetorical questions in verse 13. These are gospel-centered questions that he expects them to know the answer to. This divisiveness, he says, is Christ divided? The answer is no. Christ is not divided. He says, was Paul crucified to you? Am I supposed to cling to a man? Or am I supposed to cling to Jesus Christ as the one who has died and rose again for me? Were you baptized in the name of Paul? Is Paul the central figure or Apollos or Cephas? He says, no, these are not the ones that we're united under. These are not the ones that have died and risen again and given us eternal life. If the gospel is the transformative point that we've received this gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, it informs the way we live now. And we ought not live in this sort of divided way. Instead, we ought to live in unity. We ought to live in unity And he shows this as he continues in chapter one. He continues in 1 Corinthians chapter one and verse 26. And I love this section because it really highlights the gloriousness of Christ in contrast to the futility and the weakness of man. And he says in verse 26, for consider your calling. He wants them to recount in their own thinking, recall the good news of the gospel when your life was transformed. He says, brothers, not many of you were wise or he says powerful or of noble birth, But rather, what did God choose to show his glorious strength in the gospel? He chose what is foolish. He chose what was weak. He chose uh, what was lowly and despised in the world. Even the things that are not, he says, to bring to nothing the things that are. In verse 29, says, So that this is the reason of God's salvation of those who are destitute and lost. So that no human being might boast in the presence of God. This was the issue going on with the division of the church, is that there was pride and arrogance, this sort of boasting that thought, yeah, I know the truth, and I'm of this sect, and we're going to be exclusive in this direction under this teacher and preacher, because we have the real truth. And he's saying, no, 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 the gospel teaches us that there ought not be this sort of arrogant, self-promoting, self-exalting. Rather, there ought to be humility. And in verse 30, he continues and says, It's because of God that you are actually in Christ. Salvation is a work of God. And Jesus Christ is the one who has become to us and even for us this wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification, this being set apart for holiness, this redemption so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. The issue here was a gospel issue and they were re, they were thinking that this sort of divisiveness was normal rather than saying this is opposed to the good news of the, good news excuse me of the gospel and they were seeking to follow the messenger rather than their messiah but we also see that the issue here of uh, divisiveness spans multiple chapters and in chapter 3 he actually talks about this disunity being a sign of worldliness and immaturity in 1 Corinthians chapter 3 in verse 1, he's talking to them, and he calls them infants. He says, I can't address you as spiritual people, but rather as people of flesh. He says, you're spiritual infants, and I fed you with milk, not with solid food, because you weren't ready. And he tells them in verse 3 of chapter 3, you are still of the flesh. For while there is jealousy and strife among you, you are, not of, you are not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way. He asks them. For when one says, I follow Apollos, and another, I follow Paul, are you not merely human? He's showing them you're not actually thinking in a, a spiritual manner, but you're being very fleshly in your thinking. And this was the problem. They were infused with worldly culture rather than being saturated with the truth of God's word. And what he tells them later in this chapter is that they ought to be, truly the church is to be, the temple of Of God, If you look in verse 9 of chapter 3, he says, For we are God's fellow workers, and you are God's field, even God's building, he says. And he explains that the truth that he proclaimed to them in verse 11 was that he laid a foundation, which is Jesus Christ. That's the foundation in which the church is meant to be built up. And in verse 16, he says, Do you not know that you are God's temple, and that God's Spirit dwells in you? He's asking these questions over and over to help them see there are truths that you know through the gospel and that you're not living in accordance with. And he tells them at the end of verse 17, for God's temple is holy and you are that temple. This idea of unity is also tied to holiness. This idea of holiness is what Paul gets at in the next chapters, in, verse, in chapters, uh, ver- chapters 5 and chapter 6, he talks about the necessity of holiness because we have been united with Christ. And he hears of, in chapter 5, verse 1, he says this reported issue. He says it's actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you, a kind that's not even tolerated, he says, among pagans. And the issue that he's dealing with here is there was a man that was sleeping with his father's wife, um, which would have been his stepmom. And Paul goes on to address, in verse 2, he says, you again are arrogant. There's a sort of arrogance and pride that's in this posture of these believers that, that he's trying to help them see. He says, ought you not rather mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among of you. Among you, And he goes through and talks about how they ought to be acting actually in church discipline towards this clear opposition to the gospel. In 1 Corinthians 5, 6, he says, Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. For Christ, he gets to the gospel truth here, our Passover lamb has been sacrificed. He's saying if Christ has cleansed you and made you holy, you ought to live in the holiness of Christ. He says don't boast in sin. Instead, we ought to be separate. The church ought to be separate from this sort of pervasive sexual immorality. You've been cleansed by the blood of Christ, so walk like it. Don't walk in impurity and approve of this sort of sinfulness. And to clarify, he even says in verses 9 and 10 that this holy living doesn't mean that we need to be totally separated from the world. He's saying you need to be in the world, but not of the world, which means if there's a believer amongst you that is uh, pervasively acting in sexual immorality, they ought to be removed. That ought not be part of the community of faith, those that are holding to the truth of the gospel. But he continues to call them to holy living in chapter 6, verse 9. He says, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. He's saying there's a clear dividing line. Those that continue in unholiness and live in this manner will not inherit the kingdom of God. But there's this gospel balm, this truth that ought to encourage us in the next verse. In verse 11 he says, And such were some of you. Those things were true of you, but they aren't true of you today. But you, instead, he says, were washed. You were sanctified and being set apart. You were justified and declared righteous in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, and by the Spirit of our God. Paul's making clear that not only is the church meant to be united and unified in the gospel, but but also the church is meant to be holy because we have been united with our holy Savior. He continues in verse 15 of chapter six to say, do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? This is a clear implication of the gospel. He says, shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute He says, never, never. This sort of uh, continued instruction in chapter six, he says, the clear implication is fleeing, running away from sexual immorality. This is a sin that's even against your own body. And he says in verse 19, or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own. For you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. It's important for us to see as he's addressing these issues, he's going back to the good news of the gospel. What Christ has done is he has shed his blood for the forgiveness of your sins. But not only has he redeemed you, but he has bought you. You are not your own. And so these ideas of just living according to worldliness departs from the truth of the gospel that you are owned by Christ. You are a servant of Christ and you are to live for him, not for self. That's the good news of the gospel, and it has implications for Christian living. So question for us about these two truths already. Does the way we talk about our church here reflect and uphold the unity that we have in the gospel? How about holiness? Are are we concerned as individuals with the holiness of Christ's church? Are you actively and intentionally involved in guarding and guiding other members in our church toward holy living according to the gospel that they've received? It's interesting that these two characteristics that Paul emphasizes for the church of unity and holiness are often in churches seen as sort of contrary. That it's this sort of balancing act in churches that We actually don't want to address certain sin issues because we're afraid of of fracturing unity. Or, you know, we really, on the other hand, maybe are zealous for being perceived as holy. And so we become divisive and we create dividing lines that shouldn't be there. But Paul sees holiness and unity going hand in hand. He says, is Christ divided? No. Is Christ holy? Yes. If we have been united then with Christ, we ought to live in humble submission to our lord and master seeking to uphold unity that's been won by our savior and walk in a manner worthy of the gospel to walk in holiness so these first six chapters paul's really addressing these reported issues and he hammers on these two ideas of unity and holiness and then he transitions in chapter 7 look at chapter 7 verse 1 because it's clear in this letter and i'm i'm a big structure guy cuz i grew up as a kid reading in the king james bible And it was a foreign language to me. So it was hard to understand all the these, thines, and thous. And so I'm big on saying the Bible actually tells us reported issues. And then now in verse one of chapter seven, now concerning the manners about which you wrote. Man, that's so clear. They have written to Paul and they're saying, we have some topics we need some help on. And so transitioning to these requested issues makes it clear for us, okay, Paul's transitioning now to say, there's some topics you're concerned about. Let me show you again now, just like how we did in the first six chapters, the gospel has clear implications for these truths, and let the gospel then flow out to apply to these truths that you have questions about. And in chapter seven, he starts with one of their first questions about marriage, um, and he he really centers in on this truth in verse 17. He says, Only let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him and to which God has called him. This is my rule in all the churches. The truth here that he's really highlighting is that that whether you're single or you're married, the Lord is the one who is your master. The Lord is the one who has given you this assignment and this calling and you ought to recognize that it's from him in a ministry that glorifies him as you seek to serve in those roles. Again, he would emphasize with repetition in 723, you were bought with a price. I think sometimes when we address this, uh, this topic, even today in our own churches, in our own relationships of singleness or being married or wanting to be married or being married and not wanting to be married, how difficult it is, we kind of get into this sob story rather than saying, you know what? If you're a believer in Christ and you've trusted in him, he's your Lord. He's called you to this. And he even addresses issues where there's a believer who's found to be in a marriage with an unbeliever. He says, do you not know that your life might actually bring this person to the gospel, to saving faith? Instead of having an attitude of, man, I'm not happy in my marriage, or man, I'm not happy in my singleness, he says, no, no, no. That's not our mentality as believers. Rather, because of the gospel, we belong to Christ and our life ought to reflect both in marriage and singleness this call to die to self and to submit to Christ as lord and to find our joy and satisfaction in him so there's this idea of marriage that they had this questions about of well, should we be married should we not but he also addresses in chapter 8 through 10 this idea of christian liberty and he calls these believers at this church in addressing this topic to give up their rights for the good of others and the advancement of the gospel And the question they started with really in chapter 8 was this idea of, is it okay to eat meat that's sacrificed to idols? We're having these debates within the church. Is this okay? Is it not okay? There seems to be more divisions that are coming up because of this. Can you help us? And he says, really, he gets to um, the issue here in chapter 8, verse 8. He says, food will not condemn us to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat and no better off if we do. He says, really, the food is not the pivotal factor Because he says the truth is idols aren't real. But he gets to the issue here in verse 9. He says, But take care that this right of yours, this Christian liberty that you have, this right in the gospel, does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak, to your fellow brother or sister in Christ. For if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in in the idol's temple, will he not be encouraged? This word he means built up is a repeated word. He says, If in his conscience it's weak, he's built up to actually eat food offered to idols. He would be confused. Well, this more mature believer seems to be eating meat sacrificed to idols, and I don't really understand these truths yet, but this kind of violates my conscience, and, well, they're doing it, so I should. In verse 11, he says, So by your knowledge, this is the result of that sort of choice, of of wielding your rights as a Christian. He says, By your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed the brother for whom Christ died. That's a gospel reality. This is an implication of unity and holiness. He says, thus sinning against your brother and wounding their conscience when it's weak. He says the result is you sin against Christ. There's this this great implication of the unity of the church and walking in holiness that it even results in a sort of Christian living that says, although I have these rights based on these truths I know in Scripture, I actually lay them down for the sake of my brother or sister in Christ. I don't wield it as my right and seeking to serve self, and I don't become a stumbling block to other believers who are immature in their faith. Rather, I ought to lovingly serve others by laying down my rights, even the rights of what I have in Christ, he continues to make this point in chapter 9 by using a Christian liberty example that's personal to Paul himself. He talks about how he has a right biblically and proves it even exegetically from the Old Testament of preaching the gospel and being paid to do so, to make his living off the gospel. And he says that he lays down this right in verse, uh, cha- uh, chapter 9, verse 12. He says, Nevertheless, we have not made use of this right. But we endure anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. He says, we are to live for the gospel of Christ, not flaunting our rights in the gospel. In verse 18 of the same chapter, he says, What then is my reward? That in my preaching I may present the gospel free of charge, so as not to make full use of my right in the gospel. He's saying, I'm laying down my rights so that others will see and delight in the good news of Jesus Christ. He says, for though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win more of them. Paul's showing that the gospel has made him free not to live for himself, but to serve Christ and to advance the gospel message. I love how he says it in verse 23. He says, I do it all for the sake of the gospel that I may share with them in its blessing. This outward focus of the gospel is what drives Paul. And he says at the end of chapter 10 in verse 31, he says, So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, you're to do it all to the glory of God. He says, give no offense to the Jews or to the Greeks or to the church of God, just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage. That's that boasting and arrogance he's addressing. But rather the advantage of many, that they may be saved. The central piece here is this idea of humility and love. This, this sort of attitude says, I'm willing to lay down my rights, even my rights in the gospel, to advance the mission of Christ because I'm not my own. I belong to Christ, and the gospel changes my priorities and enables me to live in this loving and sacrificial way for the good of others. Paul continues um, in chapters 11 through 14 to show how the church should even function as a body of Christ together. In beginning of uh, chapter 11, he talks about the roles of men and women in the church, And he instructed them to to honor the order of headship that's established back in the book of Genesis. This issue with male and female and how they're to function isn't something of interpretive opinion. It's actually, Paul says, an issue of God's design from the beginning. So we can't just come with our own hermeneutics and say, well, I think this was a cultural thing. The argument Paul makes is rooted in Genesis, so we can't just detach it as a cultural issue. And Paul clarifies that men and women are equal in the Lord and that they are complementary in the Lord's work. Male and female roles are different in function and not, though, in spirituality or importance. He continues in chapter 11 to talk about their abuse of the Lord's Supper, that they were being divisive and even getting drunk and and pushing away lower class who couldn't afford food. And and they were being divisive in the way that they celebrated, he says, the Lord's death that's so detached from the good news of the gospel this and he emphasizes that we are to remember the lord's death and proclaim it until he comes and that we're to do that in unison as the united body of christ not operating in self-centered actions he continues in 12 uh, through 14 chapters 12 through 14 rather to talk about the exercise of spiritual gifts and for us this is super practical today too to think about how the spiritual gifts are to be assessed, how they're to be used, what their purpose is, why God has given them. And some of them at uh, the Corinthian church thought that there were some gifts that were lesser or uh, that were insignificant, and other gifts were that these highly exalted gifts that were super important and ought to be uh, gifts that everybody should pursue, and he talks about this in the chapter. He says should, he gives the analogy of the body of Christ. He says, should the foot say, since I'm not the hand, I'm not part of the body? Or the eye say to the hand, well, I don't need you because I see clearly enough. And he illustrates to say, this is the proud, arrogant attitude that's contrary to the gospel. And instead, his teaching at the beginning of chapter 12, starting in verse 4, makes it clear. He says, now there are a variety of gifts, but the same spirit. And there are a variety of service, but the same Lord. And there are a variety of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them all in everyone. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. And this is really the principle that Paul's getting at. It's for the common good. What that means is that the gifts that God gives us, all from him to each person in the body, is meant to build up the church. The purpose of the gift is not for us as individuals to say, man, look at how great my gift is, but rather we're just a conduit for the gift to actually build up others in the church so that they will be built up in love, so that they will glorify God. And that's really the, the central chapter of this section is chapter 13, which is often referred to as the love chapter. And I want us to recognize, although the love chapter is read at a lot of weddings, and appropriately so, because it describes biblical love, I think we ought to recognize it's in the context of the local church. And for us to actually go through and read all of 1 Corinthians 13 and say, wow, love is patient, love is kind. Is that characteristic of my attitude toward my fellow brother and sister in the church, in my discipleship relationships, in correction and admonishment, is love the characteristic that's essential as we think about serving and building one another up? That was Paul's point, and it ought to be our, um, how we interpret and receive these truths, because it ought to characterize the church, this idea of sacrificial love that seeks to glorify God for the good of another. Paul continues after this section in talking about spiritual gifts to address their question also about the resurrection, this doctrinal issue in chapter 15. This chapter uh, is the most extensive teaching in the New Testament on the resurrection. And it's both of Jesus and um, the resurrection of believers as taught in the gospels. And this sort of false teaching that was confusing the early church was this sort of dualistic thought that said physical is evil and spiritual is good, so what happens to the body doesn't really matter. We just care about our souls and our spirits. And the Sadducees, too, were um, a common, uh, t- their common teaching was to reject that of the resurrection. We see that evidenced in the gospel literature where Jesus addressed them. But this is the most um, helpful chapter in teaching what it is God's word says about the resurrection. And it's definitive. It's concrete. It's solid. He says, but in fact, I delivered you of first importance. This is clear stuff, he says. And it ought to be clear in their minds as well. We see this concise summary of the gospel at the beginning in uh, chapter 15, verses 3 and 4. He says, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. Paul continues to show the evidences of Christ's resurrection, both the church, the scriptures, the eyewitnesses, the apostle himself, and even this was the common message of the church. In verses 12 through 19, we saw the consequences if there's no resurrection, that preaching is senseless, faith is useless, preachers are liars, we're dead in our sins, and that former believers perished without hope, and that Christians are the most to be pitied, Paul says. But in verse 19, he says that same idea, that that we are to be pitied at Christians. We're to be looked down on because if there's no resurrection, there's no hope. And that's the truth he holds out, that there is first fruits evidenced in the resurrection of Christ in verses 20 through 28. The conclusion is that Christ has, in fact, been raised from the dead, and that he is merely the first fruits of all of those to come, that this provides promise, future fulfillment for believers who also will be raised from the dead when Christ returns. This chapter ends with this glorious hope in verse 54 of death is swallowed up in Christ's victory. It says, O death, where is your sting? O death, where is your victory? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, who gives us the victory through our Lord, Jesus Christ. It always went back to the gospel for Paul. It was the central cornerstone and foundation with which all of Christian living flows out, even doctrinal truths. And he wants them to see the result of this, therefore, my brothers, in verse 58 of chapter 15, be steadfast and immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Paul would continue at the beginning of chapter 16 to discuss the implications of giving, that it ought to be something that's seen as a stewardship from God, and that we ought to do it as a regular act of worship for the benefit not only of our own church, but of the abroad that are in need. Specifically, he was talking about the church in Jerusalem. So throughout this letter, Paul has faithfully applied the gospel, and really to a plentiful amount of issues that were going on in the Corinthian church. And time after time, we see that the solution was that the church needed to be gospel-centered in these three ways, in unity, in holiness, and in loving one another. Each of these matters flows from the gospel, and as Christians, we are called to live out what we have received. It's important for us to recognize there's some some helpful contributions that this letter has made to the canon of scripture that are important for us, and this central idea that we've been seeing over and over, hopefully you've caught on to it, is that the unchanging need for the gospel applied in everyday life is for those who live in the midst of ever-changing circumstances. We need the gospel, this solid foundation. When the waves of life come at us and we don't know what to do, we need to return to the truth of the gospel. And say, my living ought to be in accordance with, in line with this truth. It has implications for every area of life. Paul passionately develops a theology of the cross that shapes Christian ethics, priorities, and attitudes. The cross not only justifies, but it also teaches us how to live and die, how to lead and how to follow, how to love and serve. Secondly, we not only see the the centrality of the gospel in this letter, but we also see a robust doctrine of the church. We see Paul talking about the nature of the church, the unity of the church, even the diversity of giftings in the church, these characteristics we talked through, their conduct, their interdependence, and how discipleship works. All of this is threaded throughout the letter of 1 Corinthians. There's this extensive condemnation of arrogance and boasting that's complemented with this inverse attitude of the necessity of denying self, of serving others in humility of purity amongst the body, of love and tenderness. He even says that love is this more excellent way that all Christians must pursue. In conclusion, these truths are not just necessary for the Corinthian church. They're necessary for us today to recognize that all of Christian living must flow out of the gospel. It's this fountainhead that really impacts all these truths that upholds unity, holiness, and love. This unity that we have as the body of Christ is Christ's unity. The holiness we're supposed to walk in is the holiness of Christ because we've been united to him. We've been bought by him. And this idea of love is rooted in the love of Christ. We would not know love if we do not know the love of God and his sending of his son, his death, his resurrection, his cleansing. What immeasurable love, Paul says in other letters. And it ought to impact the way we serve and act and talk to one another. This is what Christian living is supposed to be. It's flowed out of this gospel we've received, and it impacts every area of life. 1 Corinthians is a calling for us as Christians to be united and holy as the body of Christ, that we would, in love, build one another up through the truths that we have received in the gospel. Please be sure to join us next week. Uh, We're going to continue in our study and overview of the New Testament And uh, we'll be looking at the letter of 2 Corinthians. So I hope this is a benefit to you as you seek to continue to dive personally into God's word and to be grown in unity and holiness and love amongst the body of Christ. You're dismissed.